I'm Dr. Michelle Thaller, and this is Orbital Path, a show from PRX about the cosmos and our place in it. here at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History, one of my favorite places in the world. I'm here with Lauren Obert, and, and we are seeing some incredible things. I mean, I just cannot look at a Tyrannosaurus rex skeleton and not get all kind of goofy and smile. I, I've been coming here probably since I was about five or six years old, and I loved museums as a kid, any type of museum, but the ones that had the dinosaur skeletons, the gemstones, the meteorites, those were always my absolute favorite. And the cool thing was my my dad taught geography, and uh, in doing that, he taught some geology classes, too. And I remember him wandering through these halls with me. I mean, some of these incredibly dramatic skeletons around us are the same ones that I looked at when I was six years old. And there were these different scenarios and stories about why the dinosaurs became extinct, what, what killed the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs were incredibly adaptable. They lived all over the planet. Uh, There were big ones, there were little ones, there were flying ones, there were ones that lived under the oceans. And for some reason, the entire species of dinosaurs, I mean, we're talking, of course, many thousands of species, all went extinct. The only real survival were the birds. What would have caused that? And so as a kid, Dad and I would talk about this. We would walk through these, these halls, and there was the scenario that... Well, you know, maybe the the big continent, Pangaea, got too extreme. There were cold areas and hot areas. They couldn't adapt to the different climate. Maybe the the mammals were starting. All kinds of little rodents and squirrel-like things were eating their eggs. Maybe they actually died out because of that competition. And then there was this painting of this huge explosion of a giant asteroid hitting the Earth and sending up these huge waves of debris everywhere around. And I, I still remember Dad pointing at that painting and going, well, yeah, I, I don't think it's that one. That's pretty stupid, right? I mean, how, how could a, a single big asteroid wipe out all the dinosaurs everywhere? So it's amazing to me. This is one of the things that I remember changing in my life, where it went from, oh, my God, there's no way it could have been an asteroid, to that really being the answer. And more and more evidence supported the idea that either a huge comet or a huge asteroid was responsible for the extinction of the dinosaurs. Okay, so they died because, what, they couldn't breathe, they drowned, like, they couldn't find food, they shriveled up, like, It's not what? so much a question that they died immediately after the explosion. It's that, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, millions and millions of things died in that fireball, but then once everything had cleared away, you had this winter that perpetuated for years. And the, the plants died, the plant-eating dinosaurs died, you know, and the whole food chain broke down. So most of the birds would have died, too. But some of them, you know, the feathers actually gave you this protection from the cold. And so they were more adapted to survive these extreme circumstances than the big, hulking dinosaurs we see. I mean, they, they, I mean those things couldn't burrow underground or find a nice little log to tuck themselves into or anything like that. They were so exposed. So the birds, which are a form of dinosaur, were were, were the form of dinosaur that was best adapted to deal with the changing climate. So that's the story. 
So do we all need to become birds to adapt to our changing climate? So, I mean, this is what humans are so good at, right? I mean, you find humans in the Arctic. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, aboriginal peoples that have lived there for thousands of years. And you find them in the Sahara. And you find them in places where even before we had massive amounts of technology... We were able to survive all around the planet. We are so damn adaptable. I mean, we have, like, you know, the nuclear bomb of adaptation. We've got this you know, cerebral cortex thing. Some of us do. <laughs> so a lot of people ask me, you know, are, are we safe now because NASA is monitoring all the skies? We know about all of the different large asteroids out there. And unfortunately, the, the, the uncomfortable answer is no. I mean, we, we have done a lot of different scans of the sky. We've found a lot of different large asteroids. But we're still surprised every now and then. I mean, something will actually fly in that we didn't even see coming. And for the most part, these things are kind of small. You know, they're the size of a, you know, say a, a large ship or something like that. But the thing that killed the dinosaurs, the, the asteroid or comet, was probably on the order of 6 to 10 miles across. And that's like a flying mountain. I mean, Mount Everest is approximately six miles high. So you're talking something about the size of Mount Everest just careening in from space. And this is far from impossible. There, there was lots of stuff left over when the planets were formed four and a half billion years ago. And some of the leftover chunks were big. They were the size of mountains. And now we wonder if this happens not just once but many times. It wasn't just the impact of the dinosaurs, but did it happen... Before that, there were other mass extinctions tens of millions of years ago. So all of a sudden, you're standing here with these old bones, these 65-million-year-old bones of incredible animals, and now we're thinking about space. And there are scientists these days that are taking this really seriously. One of the people that's really thinking about this a lot is Professor Lisa Randall at Harvard University. And she's actually a particle physicist. She's not even an astronomer per se. But she sees connections in things all over the place, connections to, to very large-scale things like our galaxy, to very small-scale things like elementary particles. And she thinks she may have pieced together a very interesting story about just how intimately related we are to some very deep things in the universe like dark matter. And amazingly, I got a chance to talk to her recently. I, I've been an admirer of Dr. Randall's for years, and that was a, a pretty big thrill to talk to her about her new book called Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me, Professor Randall. You're telling a, a particularly amazing story in this book. I mean, for one thing, this is one of those double-take titles. You walk by your book in a store. It says Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs. You want to tell me a little bit about the story you're trying to tell in this book? As you know, I work on elementary particles and cosmology, but I work on um, material that seems very removed from our daily lives. And one of the real joys of this research was being able to connect these very abstract-seeming um, concepts and phenomena to things that really are more immediate. The term dark matter sounds like something that's kind of mysterious or even ominous. Could you remind people what scientists mean when they use the term dark matter? So dark matter is matter in the sense that it clumps together according to gravity. It interacts with gravity like the matter we're familiar with. But as far as we know, it does not interact with light. Light just passes right through it. And that's an important distinction because it means we don't see dark matter. It means that there could be billions of dark matter particles passing through us every second, as we suspect, but we just don't experience them. Dark matter isn't made up of the same type of stuff our matter is made up of. It's not made up of charged particles. It's not made up of atoms. It really is a new type of particle that we have yet to identify what it is. And that's sort of the key to the kind of research I do. 
We're trying to determine what dark matter is at a more fundamental level. This is one of my favorite stories in science. You know, we, we, you talked about the fact that there's this form of matter that we really don't perceive at all. And I remember you had a quote from the book that said, you know, why should our senses perceive all that is there? You said, even more mysterious to me is if the matter that we see with our eyes is all the matter that exists. And, and this is one next step. There's so many steps in science where we're sort of drawing ourselves away from sort of an everyday human experience, and we're finding out we're part of a much larger world. That's right. And, you know, the one thing we should know by now is that we haven't seen everything. We haven't observed everything. There's a lot out there in the universe that we've yet to know. And this is not to undermine the tremendous accomplishments of the last 50 years, 100 years, where we've learned an enormous amount about not only cosmology, but also about the solar system and even about life. So we've learned an enormous amount, but there are still some astounding questions that we would love to make progress on. A lot of times when I'm speaking to people in the public and they want to know about huge conjecture, you know, that they want to know, well, have you discovered wormholes or parallel universes or, you know, backwards time? And, you know, one of the things you talk about in the book, and this, again, is from your book, it's, you, you say, I hope to convey how inspiring it is to contemplate what we know. There's so much richness. I mean, think about something like dark matter. And, you know, this seems like it should be highly conjectural, highly theoretical, but it's not. We actually know that this is there. Right. And, you know, I just gave a talk at the planetarium last night, and one of the important things I do is distinguish what's speculation and what isn't. I mean, dark matter is there. We've seen its gravitational influence in many different ways, and it's really convincing. It, it really acts just like matter. So when we talk about dark matter, people think we don't know anything. Well, we know a lot, and we know it's there. We know about its distribution. But as we've been talking about, we don't yet know what it's made of. And certainly one of the more dramatic ideas in your book is that this interaction of dark matter, this gravity that it exerts, has something to do with why you and I are here talking about it. It has something to do with the history of the Earth and, in fact, possibly the extinction cycle and the dinosaurs. Right. So, you know, just to take a step back, I mean, that for me, obviously, I'm a particle physicist and cosmologist, learning all the amazing amount we know about, you know, life on Earth. And again, there's a lot we don't know, but the fossil record, though very incomplete, is very extensive. And there's enough data to be able to determine that in the history, well, in the last 500 million years, there have been five major mass extinctions, where something like a half, two-thirds of the species on the planet disappeared. I mean, that's enormous, two-thirds of the species of the planet disappearing because of some disastrous event, well, from the point of view of the stuff that was there, disastrous. One of the ones that we really do know about is the one that happened 66 million years ago, where the dinosaurs and about three-quarters of the species on the planet disappeared. And, you know, when I first started this research, you know, I'd heard of the impact hypothesis, but I had no idea how solid the evidence was that there really was an impact. That is to say, some object from outer space, either an asteroid or a comet, 10 to 15 kilometers big, came and hit the Earth, traveling at about 30 kilometers per second or more. That's per second. That's not per hour. That's per second. So that's very, very fast. And so something like that hit the Earth and caused m many disaster scenarios, you know, tsunamis, fires, earthquakes, probably excessive volcanic activity, dust in the air, acid rain, just many bad things happen. But the question then becomes, did something trigger that impact? After all, stuff hits the earth all the time, and certainly stuff burns up in the atmosphere. But this was a very big object. Now, luckily for us, these sorts of events are extremely rare. You know, the, the last dinosaur-sized impactor was about 65 million years ago. 
But of course, one of the big questions then is, is there any kind of a pattern to this? Does this happen over and over again? And will it keep happening in the future? It's not everywhere in the solar system that you find a 10-mile-across mountain-sized chunk of rock that probably should have been built into a planet, but it, it didn't. It was left over. These things cluster at the very outside of our solar system. And they'll just stay there forever unless something gives them a kick, something modifies their orbit. And in many cases, it actually just throws these things all the way out of our solar system. On the other hand, it might come hurtling towards the Earth. And so one of them might have been the one that killed off the dinosaurs. As dramatic as that story is, I think the basic premise of your book, and actually, in fact, sort of the follow-on title, is the astounding interconnectedness of the universe. That things as abstract and strange as a different sort of matter you know, really does have an effect on our lives. I mean, even more of a basic way. I mean, we wouldn't have things like galaxies and, and you know, probably stars forming in galaxies without the contribution of dark matter. That's right. When, when people ask me about, you know, how do you deal with being an astronomer and dealing with things that are so far away all the time, I say, what are you talking about? You know, it's right here in the room with you. Yeah, I mean, you know, one way I like to think about a reason people might read this book is because, you know, even people who are thinking very hard about the state of the planet today it's very important and interesting to know what led to this point. You know, the sort of billions of years of cosmological history, you know, the millions of years of, of life even on Earth, you know, just how all of these things fit together. And there really are astounding connections that you just don't think about a lot. And like you said, you know, dark matter was essential to the formation of structure, both because there's so much of it and because it doesn't interact with light, which would have interfered with a collapse into structure like galaxies. The fact that there's carbon around for life to form, as you know, has to do with supernova burning up, which is kind of another amazing thing. But just the fact that plate tectonics itself relies on nuclear burning in the Earth, which heats it up so that they can move. I mean, there's just amazing connections between these very basic elements that we study. I think, as well in the book, there's a sense of the joy this brings you. People think that science is often so dry and so unemotional. And, and to me, it, it's so rich. It's so not that. And, and I, I felt that coming through in your book. Well, that's very nice of you. One of the most rewarding responses I've had to people who've read this book, you know, they really talk about the fact that they look at the world differently. And, you know, I have to say, I too, when I now look around, there's a new richness to it because there's a lot that I hadn't thought about either, of where things came from and what they actually are. And there's, there's, to me, there's very little separation. I often get the question, are you the same person that's sort of the, the scientist, you know, you know, the scale of the universe, you know, about elementary particles, and, and at night, you know, when you're trying to fall asleep and, you know, things are, are dark and difficult, you know, is, is that the same person? Is it the same view of the universe? And I'm always sort of kind of squinting at that question going, well, there, there's no real difference, right? I mean, being a scientist does make your life so much richer, and yet we're still people getting through life like everyone else. We're not some sort of other Right. And I think that is, you know, that's really one of the challenges, actually, even in writing, because, you know, a lot of the time I will, you know, try to go very fluidly from sort of analogies having to do with, you know, the outer world or the social interactions or, you know, other cultures or whatever into, you know, the more scientific things. And, I, you know, I realize I have to be really careful because for me, it is all part of the way of viewing the world. But for a lot of people, it's not. And sometimes you have to really take that extra step and say, look, I know that you think that we're thinking about this very differently, but here's where the reasoning is actually overlapping. And that's kind of fun when you can recognize those analogies to make it more immediate for those people, too, who don't think they're so similar. It's a really rich world out there, and um, you know, I just really think it's worth understanding and appreciating and, and also taking care of. You know, and that's really what is sort of the underlying theme of the book as well, is just how we go about doing science and what might be out there. 
When we teach people about astronomy, we seem to suggest that it's all very distant. There are distant galaxies. The solar system formed billions of years ago. But the thing that I love most about astronomy is how it's right here with you right now. It has to do with your life and what's going on. When you think about the dinosaurs going extinct, that allowed mammals to come to prominence. All these tiny little rodents and squirrels and tree shrews, all of a sudden there were these evolutionary niches they could move into that the dinosaurs had vacated when they went extinct. And you are related to one of those little tree shrews that survived that day. That giant asteroid hit the Earth, probably somewhere near the Gulf of Mexico. Mass extinction, mass chaos followed. But some things lived through it. And you are directly related. Your, your great, several million times great-grandmother was there on that day. And possibly the reason that happened at all had to do with something as mysterious as dark matter. So the universe is not about the distant. It's about things right here, right in front of your nose, right now. has been commanded by Lauren Ober, John Barth and Genevieve Sponsor co-pilot from the PRX Mothership. Erica Kramer navigated the soundscape, and Jim Briggs orchestrated the theme music. Special thanks to the studios of WAMU in Washington, D.C., Planet Earth. We are supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information at sloan.org. And I'm Dr. Michelle Thaller, a little bit of dead stardust, signing off for now.